You've likely heard the expression, fair weather friends, at some point before. And it's pretty easy to see what that speaks of. It speaks of those friends who are friends when the weather is fair. When the sun is shining and when there are good temperatures, not when there are metaphoric heavy winds and rains. That's not the way that should be, especially in the body of Christ. As Proverbs 17.17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Within that Hebrew text, the words in our English text, at all times, are in the emphatic position. It's at the beginning of the proverb. At all times, a friend loves. This friend that loves at all times, you might say, is like a brother born for adversity. And not simply out of familial obligation, but out of choice. You might say that such is an all-weather friend. And in the body of Christ, there should be many all-weather friends who are brothers and sisters born from above for both times of joy and adversity. Paul had, apparently, as we see in our text, he had both fair-weather friends and he had all-weather friends. We'll see an example of the former, of somebody who was a fair-weather friend. We'll see um, quite a few examples of the latter, of those who were all-weather friends. And if we did get to verses Uh, 14 and 15 today, we'll see if we do. We see an example of someone that we might call an all-weather antagonist, Alexander, the man who did Paul much harm. We'll see all of that as we make our way through the text. But we begin in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, where we read, Make every effort to come to me soon. The Greek word that's used here for make every effort is a word that Paul used earlier in this epistle when he told Timothy that he was to make every effort to be diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately, rightly handling the word of truth. So he told him, make every effort to do that, to be that. But here he's telling Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Paul is telling Timothy to make haste to get from where Timothy was, which was most likely Ephesus, to where Paul was in Rome. Now the sense of haste is added, added to, it's augmented by the Greek word that's also used here, takaos. It's translated as soon in our text. So Paul wanted Timothy to hurry. He wanted him to get to him soon. And if you're like, well, what does that mean? Because some people could say soon, and for different people, that means different things. Paul will clarify what that means as we approach the epistle's end. He wanted Timothy to get to him before winter. Timothy had to hasten to get to Paul. The reason for that is obvious. Unlike the time when Paul told Titus, to make every effort to come to him at Nicopolis. We see that in Titus chapter 3, verse 12. This was just about the end of the road for Paul, at least this side of eternity. You might say that the sand in the hourglass of his time on earth in this way was running out. The machinations of the Roman legal system were still playing out, so there was a little bit of time, but Timothy needed to hurry. If Timothy was going to get to Paul before Paul went to the Lord, he had to make haste to get there quickly. As far as why 
Paul wanted Timothy to come to him, well, I think the obvious thing that comes to our minds most immediately is his love for Timothy, right? I mean, you see that earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He had this filial affection for his son in the faith. He told Timothy that he longed to see him, that he might be filled with joy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. So doubtless there was familial love, and doubtless that was part of the equation. However, within this context, we see that Paul desired to see Timothy before his martyrdom because there were other factors that were at work as well. We'll see what those are as we proceed, but before we proceed, I just want to call your attention to a few things. I want you to note this first. Note that the work that was going on in Ephesus was not Timothy-dependent. Right? Paul's telling Timothy, make every effort to come to me as soon as you can. Well, what does that mean? If Timothy goes from where he was to where Paul was, Timothy would not be where he was. He wouldn't be in Ephesus anymore. And it's just a good reminder to us that Paul anticipated that the work would go on without Timothy there in Ephesus. Now, granted... When you look at the the way in which it worked in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his co-laborers, you could see that Paul was mindful that there would be men who were godly men who would serve in such places. More to say about that in a moment. And doubtless there was a need. If Timothy was not going to be there, there had to be those who were qualified. Men who were men of integrity, men of character, men who could handle the word accurately and teach it rightly. Doubtless that was appropriate and doubtless that was needed. But what we see so often is that during Paul's missionary journeys, he'd preach the gospel. Churches would be founded. Elders would be appointed. And in many ways, in many ways, although they were specific and they were unique individuals, saved by the grace of God, uniquely empowered by God, many of the co-laborers of Paul served in kind of interchangeable ways. They would go and they would serve in specific places and they would build up the churches there. So, I just want us to quickly take note, as Paul is telling Timothy to come to him, the work that was going on in Ephesus, good reminder for us, was not Timothy-dependent. But the second thing I want you to notice, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, is that Paul wasn't like, I'm going through a hard time right here, so Timothy, the people in Ephesus, they can like, you know, figure it out on their own. You just get to me where I am. No, no, no. Even while Paul was on the brink of martyrdom, he was mindful of the churches. And he made sure, we're going to see this, brother, as we get into the text. He made sure that a godly, faithful laborer like Tychicus was going to take Timothy's place, at least for the time being in Ephesus. So be instructed by the Apostle Paul. Do not think when you see in verse 9, when he says, make every effort to come to me as soon as you can, and you start thinking through that, and you're like, wait a minute, if Paul has Timothy leave Ephesus, who's going to be in Ephesus? Does Paul not care? No, he cares. That's why Tychicus is going to be in Ephesus. And more about Tychicus when we get there. Third thing I want you to note is that this was a long ways away for Timothy. Paul was not asking Timothy, like, can you just run down the block, like, run to the store for me and, like, grab me a sandwich and some water or something like that? This was about, like, approximately 900 miles away. And Timothy wasn't going to hop in an SUV and drive down some ancient Near Eastern route like I-95 and just get to where Paul was. It wasn't going to be like that. He would have to travel by land and by sea, and whatever risks he endured on the way to Rome, doubtless he would face even greater risk in Rome. 
to closely identify with one who had been regarded as a criminal and an evildoer. And is there any doubt that after receiving this letter, even if he had some measure of trepidation, even if he had some measure of fear of some kind to join with Paul in suffering for the gospel, is there any doubt that Timothy went and made haste to get there as soon as he could? And it was a big sacrifice. Paul was essentially asking Timothy to uproot his life in Ephesus so he can get to Paul where Paul was. Now in verse 10, we begin to see some of the rationale for this, for Paul's request and exhortation and charge for Timothy's visit. In verse 10 we read, For Demas, having loved this present world, he could also say this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So you notice right there, at the beginning of our English text, there's the word for. It's the Greek word gar, and this lets us know that this is one of the proximate reasons for Paul telling Timothy what he did in verse 9. Make every effort to come to me as soon as you can. Why? For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And not only that, there was Demas' desertion, there was also the departure of other ministry associates. We see the departure of Crescens and Titus referenced. So as a result, Paul not only had doubtless filial and brotherly love for Timothy, but with these men gone and with Paul awaiting martyrdom, there was also a likely very real need for practical assistance. The practical assistance that he would have continued to receive from somebody like Demas was no longer there. And Demas is the first person that's referenced here. And if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, that name sounds familiar. He was a man who was a co-laborer of the Apostle Paul. He was a ministry associate. He had done ministry with him. He had traveled with him. We see his name referenced at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians and at the end of Paul's letter to Philemon. Note, both of those epistles, by the way, were written when Paul was in prison. So this man, Demas, had been with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. As a matter of fact, along with Luke... Demas sent greetings to the Colossians. We see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He was also identified by Paul as a fellow laborer in verse 24 of that one chapter epistle to Philemon. So this man had been with Paul for much of his ministry. But this imprisonment, as you know, was not like the first. During that first Roman imprisonment, Paul was under house arrest. He was able to have many visitors and he was awaiting trial. Here, however, he was likely in a dungeon-like cell. Perhaps, potentially, the Mamertine prison. He was regarded as an evildoer. And as we could see in our study of 2 Timothy, he anticipated a forthcoming execution. And apparently, in light of what Paul said, right, all in Asia have forsaken me. In light of the risks that others had taken to be alongside of Paul, the risks were much higher now for Paul's friends. And apparently they were too high for Demas. So Demas' desertion, as Paul describes it here, was precipitated by him having loved this present world. 
You could render that expression there as having loved this present age. Having loved this present age. Now, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that Demas loved this present world? He loved this present age. Well, I would say it's not too difficult to surmise the scenario. Consider the two options that were before Demas. So option one that Demas had was essentially to stay with Paul, identify with Paul and his message, and possibly as a result of that, be regarded as a criminal and as an evildoer and be sentenced to death row even as Paul was. That's option one. Option number two, he can get out of town. And he can go to Thessalonica, which might have been, we do not know, it might have been his hometown in light of the fact that he's identified with a man by the name of Aristarchus in one of Paul's epistles who was from Thessalonica. Aristarchus the Thessalonian. So the idea seems pretty clear. Demas having loved this present age and wanting to escape the prospect of hardship or whatever hardship he was already enduring, serving alongside of Paul, he deserted Paul. He wanted to get out of harm's way and he chose to leave having a love for the present age. His love for the present age was so strong that it pushed out, if you will, love for the Apostle Paul. At least love enough to stay there and be alongside of him. So Paul wrote, Demas has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. That word for deserted is a very strong one. It's a word that could be rendered as abandon or forsake. We think of Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is strong language. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus promises to never do to his own. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, He has made a promise to all of His people that He will never leave nor forsake or desert or abandon us. Jesus will never pull a Demas. But Demas, on the other hand, he was not like the ultimate friend, that friend who sticks closer than a brother, to use language from Proverbs 18.24. Demas, on the other hand, forsook Paul and he went to Thessalonica, which was a well-populated metropolis, Maybe Demas' hometown, what exactly his motives were to choose Thessalonica, we do not know. Apparently he thought he would be safer there, and so he went there. Now I want us to note this. Many do note this, and understandably, many note that the text does say that Demas deserted Paul, but it does not necessarily say that Demas deserted the faith. Now, while we do not know what was going on in Demas' mind, we do know that being categorized as someone who loves this world, biblically, is not a good thing. We know, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John wrote that if anyone loves this world, not in a godly and appropriate and compassionate kind of way, but if anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. Think of how Paul described this present age. Remember I told you that having loved this present world could be rendered having loved this present age. Think about how Paul described this present age in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. He described it as this present evil age. So again, granted, it's not saying that Demas deserted the faith. It's saying that he deserted the Apostle Paul. But when you say that somebody has loved this world and somebody has loved this age, biblically, there are some associations there that are not good ones at all. Furthermore, 
Paul, having mentioned what Demas loves here, having loved this world of this present age, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that's in contrast to what he just spoke about in verse 8. Having spoken about those who have loved the Lord's appearing. It's as though you have a contrast here. Those who love the Lord's appearing and somebody like Demas who loved the present age. All of which may, note the word may, if the words were depicted before you, if the word may was depicted before you, I would italicize it. Okay, So may, all of this may well connote that Demas was one who heard the word, received it with joy, and had no root in himself. Yeah, he was some, someone who endured for a while, and when tribulation and the prospect of persecution arose for the sake of the word, he stumbled. To use language from Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> Suffice it to say, there are questions as to whether or not Demas' desertion was wholehearted um, apostasy or an act of weakness or self-desertion. Whatever the case was, apparently his presence was needed by Paul, but his love for the present age was greater. And he abandoned the post at which he had been placed. I do think that Demas is a, a warning for us. He serves as that. I think he should. His love for the world caused him to abandon his post. And let us all just be reminded in this room that we are not above such temptations. I think of what Satan said in Job chapter 2. Who even by, even by that time, even by the time of Job chapter 2, early, yes, nonetheless, in human history, but nonetheless, Satan had had much experience with human beings. So much so that he would say this concerning human beings in Job chapter, four, Job chapter 2 verse 4, the second half of the verse. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Satan supposed that Job's faith would fail when his body was assailed. Now I think such a consideration, just even seeing that Satan would say that and think that, should make us very thankful for the one who intercedes for us. Remember, Jesus had said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And doubtless, If it were not for what Jesus said next, and for what Jesus had done, Jesus told Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. We should be so thankful for the One who intercedes for us. Because if it were left to us, we would give anything, even our souls, in exchange for our physical lives. But thanks be to God, there is one who stands at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the one who will ensure that we cross the finish line. So our confidence is not in ourselves. We're not saying, oh, we are going to be strong and resolute and we are not going to be like Demas. We trust in the preserving power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit whereby by His grace we will not abandon our posts. Thanks be to God for Christ. Demas had come far, but I want you to think of this as well. This was a defining desertion. If this didn't happen, Demas would likely be regarded by us as somebody like Tychicus, or somebody like Luke, or somebody like Epaphras. 
But instead, this is what we know of Demas. Despite what he did, here is a defining desertion. And I think for us, knowing that the flesh is weak ought to make every one of us humble, careful, reliant, and prayerful. Reliant upon the one who is interceding for us. So that even if sifted like wheat, we can have confidence that our faith will not fail. Now, perhaps uh, recalling Demas' departure stirred Paul's remembrance of other people who had left him as well, though it appears that these individuals left to fulfill ministerial duties. Which you have to love this, because Paul is in prison, and at the expense of himself, he is sending other people to continue doing the work of ministry. That appears to be the idea here. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And we don't know anything else about Crescens. There are some references in church history where maybe we can, we can draw some more information out concerning who this man was. But biblically, uh, this is all we know about him. He went to Galatia, and that was in Asia Minor. That is modern-day Turkey. And Paul, apparently, this seems to be the context, sent him there to a place that Paul had visited on each of his missionary journeys. As we see it depicted in the Scriptures, Galatia. Paul had planted the church there in Galatia, and Crescens was going, you might say, as a relatively, at least by our standards, unknown saint. Not that he was unknown in the ancient world, but think about it. We don't really know anything about him. And I think he's a good example of an unknown yet faithful, faithful saint that served the Lord Jesus Christ, and he served the church. And he did so, at least by our standards now, you know, many years removed, in obscurity compared to somebody like, say, Timothy or Luke. So there's Crescens, faithful. He goes to Galatia. What about Titus? Titus went to Dalmatia. Now, unlike Crescens, um, Titus is decently known by us. After all, there's an epistle in the canon of Scripture that is Paul's epistle to who? Titus. And when you look in 2 Corinthians, you see a lot of references there to Titus. He was a reliable and faithful co-worker and ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. We see him referenced also in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul described him as a true son in our common faith in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. And Paul had left him in Crete, and we see this in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, so that he would appoint elders in every town. This was a reliable man. I mean, Paul uses strong language, like the kind of language that we just normally associate with Timothy, where he calls Timothy his son in the faith. Well, Titus had a similar identification. He called him, in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, a true son in our common faith. And he left him in Crete with the important responsibility of establishing elders in each town. So that's who this man was, and he went to Dalmatia. He went to Dalmatia. And what... Um, what would be a modern-day counterpart of Dalmatia? Well, as Bill Mounts notes, uh, Dalmatia was the southwestern part of Elycrium. On the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea, modern-day Yugoslavia. Currently, Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. Interestingly, when writing to the Church of Rome... Paul said that his missionary journeys 
had gone from Jerusalem to Elycrium. So it appears to be something like this that's going on. Paul had ministered in this place. A church was likely founded in this place. And now Titus, who had gone to other places on behalf of Paul, like Crete, now he was going to Elycrium. And likely he was going to do there um, some, some of the work that he had done in other places. Strengthening and helping churches that had been established by Paul's missions work. So those are some of Paul's uh, companions, one of whom deserted him, two of whom went to respective places uh, that were just referenced. Later we're going to find, by the way, that a man by the name of Erastus, he stayed in Corinth. Trophimus was left sick in Miletus. So that provides a little bit of context for what Paul says next in verse 11. In verse 11 he says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. So this verse begins with the statement, Only Luke is with me. But now you got a little bit of the context as to why only Luke was with him. Because others had gone other places. Demas had deserted him. Titus and Crescens had gone other places. Erastus stayed in Corinth. Trophimus was sick in Miletus. Tychicus, as you're going to see, he went to Ephesus. Only Luke is with him. Now Luke's bio should not only read gospel writer, historian of the first rank, or uh, physician, right? Luke was a physician. But it could also read best of friends. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He had been with him on missionary journeys. He joined Paul in the propagation of the gospel. He was in, identified in Colossians 4.14 as the beloved physician. The beloved physician. Think about this as a quick aside. Think of God's gracious providence to the Apostle Paul. That one who was by him so often, and one who was by him right now when he was in prison, was not only a faithful brother in Christ, but a physician. I think Paul probably needed the help of a physician in light of all the different afflictions that he faced of one kind or another. And I think that's a bit of gracious providence from God to Paul. Um, Paul was joined by Luke, it appears, on his second missionary journey, particularly in Troas. I want to show you something. In uh, Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, we see something interesting take place in the 16th chapter. So I'm going to read to you from Acts 16, and I want you to notice how the language of Luke the historian goes from third-person form to first-person plural. This is something that just in your Bible reading you could perhaps miss, and it's pretty neat to see when Luke joined him in his missionary endeavor. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6-10, through 10, we read the following. Now when they had gone through Phrygia, in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So Luke the historian is accounting for the travels of Paul and his co-laborers. He's doing it in third person form until he joins the journey. Leaving from Troas and then it changes to a first person plural, we. And then by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, you still see this kind of language. Luke writes in Acts 28 verse 16, the first half of it, and so we came to Rome. Luke was a friend that stuck closer than a brother. Not only with Paul during missionary travels, not only with him in Rome in Acts 28, but with him in Rome in 2 Timothy chapter 4. A faithful friend and a physician that could help Paul by treating his ailments and being there with him. But look what else Paul wrote. He didn't just want um, Timothy to come to him. He wanted Timothy to bring someone with him. He told Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now this is Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas. We see that in a place like Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. This is Mark. Uh, The church was meeting in the house of his mother Mary in Acts chapter 12 when the church was praying for Peter. Um, That was his house, and particularly his mother's house. You see that in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. And he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. We see him referenced at the end of Acts chapter 12, and then apparently he's with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. However, he appears to leave at some point after they reach Pamphylia. Mark went home, and we don't know why. But apparently, it wasn't necessarily a good thing. As a matter of fact, in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, it clearly wasn't. Because when it came time for the second missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, there was a sharp disagreement between both Paul and Barnabas. You see that in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and 39. So apparently, Paul was looking at what Mark had done and said, he he left us. Now you're kind of reading between the lines here. And And he deserted us, or for some reason, he abandoned the work. And Barnabas is like, essentially, let's bring him on this second missionary journey. There's a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And what happens? They end up going on two different missionary travels. Two different missionary journeys. See God's providence in that. They have a sharp disagreement between themselves, and what happens? Well, the gospel ends up going to two different places. Barnabas takes Mark, and they go somewhere, and then Paul goes uh, with Silas, and they go, and the gospel ends up spreading in two different places. Now, apparently, whether it was the time that he had with Barnabas, we end up seeing in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Mark had a relationship with the apostle Peter, which likely gave him some content for the gospel that he would write. This is the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And apparently, things had been restored over time. Apparently, Mark had grown. He had learned. Whatever he lacked when he was in Pamphylia that led him to abandon the work, things had changed. So much so that Paul could even reference him as a fellow worker towards the end of his epistle to Philemon. And now he's telling Timothy, make sure you bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me for service. I think Mark is a good reminder that a Christian who has shirked his or her own responsibilities at some point need not be marked by ministerial abandonment. Mark learned. Mark grew. 
Mark was likely helped by other brethren like Barnabas, like Peter, and of course, Paul. And that brings us to verse 12 where Paul writes, But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now it's very possible, perhaps even likely, that Tychicus is the one who has delivered this epistle to Paul. Tychicus did that kind of thing. Uh, We'll see some examples of that. He was a believer from the province of Asia. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. He was the one who apparently delivered Paul's letters to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22, and to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. He might have also delivered Paul's epistle to Titus, to Titus. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, we see that. Now listen to how uh, he's described by Paul. Towards the end of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he wrote the following. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts." That's who Tychicus was. Paul wrote just about the same thing when he was writing to the Colossians and he identified Tychicus. You can see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. I'll read it to you in a moment. Um, to Titus, who was ministering in Crete, Paul wrote the following, When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, so it could have been either one who delivered the epistle, um, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, Nicopolis for I have decided to spend the winter there. So what I want you to see about this man here, so you're not only seeing that the Apostle Paul was mindful of the work at Ephesus, so much so that he's not only telling Timothy to leave, he's sending Tychicus to Ephesus. And who is this man, Tychicus? You may not know much about him, but this is what you do know about him. What Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 is a good summary. There he called Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And I think there we have a good example of how we should hope that people in the body of Christ identify us. If other Christians look at you and they could say something like that concerning you and myself, like what was said concerning Tychicus, by God's grace, good fruit is being born. He's identified as a beloved brother, a faithful minister or a faithful servant, and a fellow servant in the Lord. The pulpit commentary noted, He is a beloved brother to his fellow believers, a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a fellow servant with the Apostle. That brings us to verse 13. In verse 13, Paul wrote, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. So Paul didn't want Timothy to just come with Mark. He wanted him to come with his cloak and with his books, especially the parchments. Now, this cloak that's spoken of here was a heavy garment. It was a kind of coat. Uh, Many commentators note that it was likely this kind of heavy garment that had likely one hole in it. And so Paul would put his head or somebody put their head through the hole and they would be kind of draped around their warden sleeves in this kind of garment. It would protect somebody from, the, from you know, weather and rain. But where Paul was, it would protect him from the cold in a damp cell. Not to mention the fact that winter was coming soon. So if that cell was already damp and cold, it was only going to get more so once winter arrived. 
So he does ask Timothy to bring the cloak that was left with a man by the name of Carpus. We don't know anything else about this man, Carpus. But this might begin to fill us in a little bit on what happened to Paul shortly before he was arrested. Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but if you watch the train of thought that happens here, he's going to reference leaving his cloak and his books and his parchments, or especially the parchments, with Carpus. And then he's going to think of this man by the name of Alexander who did him much harm. We're going to see that in verses 15, 14 and 15. He's going to speak of, of the much harm that he did and how he opposed the teaching of Paul and of others. And then he's going to think of his first defense. So I think it's very reasonable to say Paul may be thinking here, carried along by the Holy Spirit, of what happened to him. Because you might ask this question, how did Paul end up leaving his cloak at Troas? At, or with Carpus, I should say. How did he end up leaving it there? And how did he leave his books, especially the parchments? What might have happened might have been something like this. Word might have gotten to the Apostle Paul that he was informed against. We'll see that. The language is kind of connoted in what's spoken of concerning Alexander. And then maybe he knew he had a little bit of time and he committed certain things into the possessions of a man by the name of Carpus. And he gives him his cloak. He gives him these books, especially the parchments. These things that were apparently precious to the Apostle Paul. So much so that now that he's on death row, he nonetheless wants them. We'll talk more about what they were in a moment. And so then maybe as a result of Alexander's treachery, Paul gets arrested. Having to leave what he had there with Carpus. Then he's arrested and soon after that comes his first defense. We'll talk more about how Alexander might have informed against Paul, uh, been an informant that led to his arrest. More about that probably, Lord willing, next week. Uh, Paul requested not only that Timothy bring the cloak, but his books, especially the parchments. Now the books likely refer to papyrus scrolls. They might have been Old Testament books. You see that language used in uh, Luke chapter 14, verse, uh, 4, verse 17. The book, or the scroll, of the prophet Isaiah. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. The book of the law. So these might have been Old Testament writings that had been copied. Some suppose that they were pieces of early Christian literature that might have included some of the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some also suppose that maybe this was uh, some notes that Paul had made on Old Testament texts, perhaps even drafts of his letters or sermons, though um, seeing them as most likely Old Testament books would be the most likely uh, of options. The word especially might be a qualifying term. He might be saying, when you come, bring the books. That is, so if it's being used here as a qualifying term, this word, It might be, bring the books, that is, the parchments. So elaborating on the kind of books Paul had in mind. If not, and this is interesting, the parchments, which were expensive sheets of animal skin, they could refer to other writings or writing sheets that Paul could have used to write other letters. So when you put those um, options together, you get a picture of Paul being in prison But what may be happening here is he's requesting not only books for reading, and I don't think he's just like looking for something like, give me Caesar's Digest and like the Roman Times. 
I, I think the idea would be he's on death row. He wants something that is soul nourishing, something that contains something like Old Testament texts of Scripture so he can meditate on the Word of God and perhaps also writing sheets. And just think how... Pauline that is. How like the Apostle Paul that is. To be given to biblical truth even as he is on death row and to be given to the work of ministry even as he is on death row. You see it all all happening right here. He doesn't want Timothy just to come to him so he's like, you know, I'm kind of lonely and I just want somebody to be with me as I get ready to pass from this life into the presence of the Lord Jesus. He's thinking about ministry. He's like, Crescens has gone here. Titus has gone here. Mark, bring him with you. He's useful to me for ministry. He's thinking about the work of Christ and he's thinking about the body of Christ even as he's on death row. So it's not unlikely that in this moment, even though there's not a canonical letter of the Apostle Paul that appears after this in the canon of Scripture, it's not unlikely To think of Paul wanting Old Testament books or something with biblical truth so he might be nourished and writing sheets so that he might encourage others. Paul is a great example. A great example to us. And he's a reminder to us that above all people, the Christian is to be a lifelong learner and a lifelong minister. Paul's serving right up until the point of death. He is running through the tape. (laughs) He's going. He's not slowing down. He's like, I'm in prison. I'm still going to do ministry. I'm still going to kind of look to where people can be sent. He's a lifelong learner by the grace of God. And he's a lifelong minister. A lifelong student and a lifelong servant. That's who you and I are called to be in Christ Jesus. We are called to be that. Now, I want to close here, although part of me wants to go on to verses 14 and 15 because it continues to add context. I love verses like this. Um, I'll probably, next week at the beginning of the message, just speak about how much I love the end of Paul's epistles because so often it gives you so much more insight into how ministry was happening in the early church through people who, in many cases to us, are largely unknown. And think about the Apostle Paul. I want to call your attention to this in closing. Look at how the Apostle Paul was relational. He was relational. He had true gospel friends around him. And he was a true gospel friend to others. He had friends around him as he suffered for the gospel. He wasn't just thinking like, you know, I got this on my own. I'm just going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with my personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he had the opportunity to continue to interact with others if they were willing to interact with him at the risk that it might undertake for them. And he did. He's relational. We see that in the words that he writes concerning these people that he cared about, concerning what he felt about Timothy, how he longed to see him. He was relational and he had people to support him and to continue the work of Christ with Him. And in that, I think we are all reminded that we ought to surround ourselves with Christian friends. I'm going to to accent that. We are to surround ourselves with Christian friends. Forever family. Even as we pursue being those Christian friends who love at all times. Those brothers or sisters born from above, you might say, for adversity. So let me then say, by way of application, brethren, I say this. Brethren, 
Befriend, befriend brethren. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. But you might remember it. Brethren, befriend... Wow, I should have practiced that. <laughs> brethren, befriend brethren. It's, it's a takeaway. Because if you think of a takeaway from this text, that would undoubtedly be one of them. And join in linking arms with somebody else in doing the work of Christ together. I mean, we have great examples of friends in the text of Scripture. Luke, Titus, Tychicus, Timothy, all are great examples. But who is the friend par excellence? The Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what He told His disciples shortly before He would die for them and for us. He told them that no greater love has any man than this than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And then he would tell them, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Think about that. Among the identifications that you have as a son or daughter of God, among the identifications you have as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, as brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ also calls you his friend. And He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is the friend that in the ultimate act of self-sacrifice died on the cross for those who were His enemies so that we might be made His friends and His brethren forever. You think about that act of love. That this friend lays down his life. The Son of God lays down his life on the cross But that wasn't the only act of love that he would do. That act of love, which was the ultimate, the apex of the demonstration of the love of God, was then followed by a commitment that he would be the friend that would never leave or forsake his own. So as a Christian, you and I are called to marvel at his friendship. And then by the grace of God, to whatever degree we can, the grace of God working in us, we are to image that kind of friendship in our friendships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way in which we could be instructed by Paul's example. Your Word instructing us. We, by Your grace, Heavenly Father, desire to be like that Proverbs 17.17 kind of friend that friend that loves at all times, to be that brother or sister that's born for adversity, born again from above, Lord. And Father, I pray for us that You would help us, Lord. Help us to marvel at Your friendship towards us, that it's not only somebody like Abraham who has that identification, but through Christ Jesus we are made Your friends much more than even just being your friends. We are your children. Thank you, our Father who is in heaven, and thank you for your Son. Father, as we continue on in this pilgrim journey that you have before us, we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to be like men like Tychicus. Help us to be those who are faithful ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who love brethren and are regarded as beloved brethren by others. 
Help us, Heavenly Father, to be like Timothy, to be willing to undertake ministerial responsibilities where appropriate, to undertake uh, tasks, even at great cost to ourselves, for others. Help us to be like Luke, who was a, a faithful friend to the Apostle Paul in so many ways. Help us, Heavenly Father, protect us, lead us not into temptation, protect us from being like Demas. And Father, where in our hearts there is an inappropriate love for this world or the present age, we pray, Heavenly Father, search us and know us. And if there are offensive ways in us, by Your grace, would You lead us in the way that's everlasting? And we pray, Father, that driving all of the love that we show to others would be our beholding the great love that You have shown to us in the Gospel, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would marvel that Christ Jesus died in the place of sinners. That Christ Jesus took our punishment upon the cross. And that Christ Jesus rose from the grave three days later. And that that same Lord Jesus has committed to never leave us or forsake us. So Father, help us to live in light of His love and in light of Your love towards us. Even as we seek to communicate that love to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.